You may be seated. Good morning once again. I'm glad you're here at Hope and Anchor. I'm glad that we get to count ourselves as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, this morning, this is the last stop in our uh, teaching series called Beautiful Attitudes. Our time spent in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus uh, talking through the Beatitudes with his, uh, with his audience, those on the hillside with him in Matthew chapter 5 and also with us uh, in gathering in places like this all around the world. Uh, so today I'd like to start with a story. Uh, this is week number 11 and today's message is called Shattered. Shattered. In his book, The Blood of the Martyrs is the Seed of the Church, Rex Butler says this about Watchman Nee. Has anyone heard of uh, Watchman Nee? Watchman Nee, one of the great Chinese pastors of the 20th century, once, once preached on persecution through a sermon without words. On a Sunday when his church was infiltrated by a communist spy, he decided not to speak. Instead, he picked up a glass of water and began to shake it until all the water spilled out. Next, he threw it to the ground, and it shattered into many shards. He continued to smash the glass by stomping on it and grinding it with his heel. Finally, after the fragments were scattered across the floor, he ended the service in silence. What was the point of this wordless sermon? According to Randy Alcorn, who wrote Safely Home about persecution in China, he said, In attempting to destroy the church, the government had spread it. Instead of holding the church safely in its hand, the state had lost control of it. The more China's government stalk and stomp, the more they spread the church with their own heels. This truth was just as evident in the early church of the Roman Empire as it is in the contemporary world of persecution. At the turn of the third century, Tertullian, the Carthaginian teacher who bore witness to, the, to Christian martyrdom, famously wrote, Yet nothing whatsoever is accomplished by your cruelties, even when each is more heinous than the last. Instead, they serve as an enticement to our religion. Indeed, we supply a greater yield whenever you cut us down. The blood of Christians is seed. More recently, a pastor from Bangladesh expressed a similar sentiment. Persecution is the rain that causes the church to grow. Persecution is the rain that causes the church to grow. He said this in spite of, or because of, his loss of employment, his property, and his family due to persecution from Muslims. He also reported that a house church pastor had been hanged because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Persecution is the rain that causes the church to grow. Perhaps you've noticed by now, but the, ch the church is a strange creature. The church is a strange creature, a living being. Like a human body, the church, it grows strong. How? The church grows strong through struggle. The church grows strong through opposition, yet it languishes and grows weak 
when it's comfortable and when it's complacent. Have you noticed this? The church is, as Paul talks about, a living body because it does what living bodies do. It grows strong when stressed, but grows flabby when comfortable. From its inception, the church has advanced most when persecuted. This strange dynamic has marked the church from the very beginning. When the church is most persecuted, that's when it grows the most. That's when it advances the most. Whether it's in the shadow of Rome, whether it's in the shadow of communist regimes, the church has proven irrepressible in the face of resistance and persecution. This is indeed why the church has outlived so many empires. Empires rise and fall, yet the church just trundles along. It's like you can't stop the church. Put the church in a position of power, and it gets co-opted and corrupted. I'm looking at you, Constantine. The church does not do well in positions of authority. When the, when the church rules the roost, it gets co-opted. It gets corrupted and corrupted badly. In the seat of authority, the church quickly becomes filled with lazy, self-seeking people who have lost their focus on the mission of Christ. Look all through history, and you find that this is the case. Give the church a bit of authority, and it goes off the rails. It starts looking inward, and it starts losing focus on the mission of Christ in the world. But place the church on the fringes of society, make the church an outcast, and what happens? Place the church as a countercultural uh, voice in the community, position her so that she can speak prophetically into her host culture, and guess what? Then the church finds her voice. Then the church rediscovers her focus. Then the church uh, taps into her strength. And then the church steps in to her vocation. The church does not thrive at the center of power. The church seems to thrive on the fringes, where it can speak prophetically to its culture. While persecution is terrible to experience, I'm not going to uh, talk about like look forward to it, enjoy it, you know, smile as you're being smashed in the face. Persecution's bad. No one enjoys persecution. Persecution is terrible to experience, but it disciplines the body of Christ. Persecution is put to good use by our good Father because it disciplines the body of Christ and it causes all the flabbiness, all the lethargy to fall away and a certain strength and vitality to arise. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm fairly convinced that it's a strength and a vitality that can only arise when persecution comes. It's like a strength and a vitality we only know when we're pushed to extremity. When we have only Christ to rely on. While the half-hearted, the nominal Christians will head for the exits in times of persecution, the faithful followers of Jesus will dig in and they will hold fast. This has happened time and time again throughout the history of the church. Through difficulty, the church, as I've said before, the church becomes a lean, mean, worshiping machine. That's right. The church becomes a lean, mean, worshiping machine. Dictators, oppressors have found over and over again that the harder you press down on the church, the harder it presses on. 
The harder you press down on the church, the harder it presses on. It's irrepressible. This unique attribute of the church, it perhaps helps explain then why Jesus, why James, why Paul, and why others in the New Testament point to persecution not just as something to be endured, but they point to persecution as a gift. As a gift, as a blessing to the church. What in the world? Persecution, oppression, hardship, are we to receive these things as a gift and as a blessing? Well, apparently so. Somehow, when we proclaim the gospel and when we work diligently for peace in our world, persecution naturally comes. And when that persecution comes, we should be not bitter, not forlorn, not filled with despair. We should be thankful. We should be thankful because in some cosmic way, the persecution is a gift. And it's a blessing, something that God can and will use to grow His church strong. If you uh, are thinking about James chapter 1 right now, you're tracking with me. Turn over there to James chapter 1. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. Well-known passage that maybe your mind drifted to, as I said, be thankful when persecution comes. James 1, 2 through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I have to confess that I'm not very instinctively joyful in the face of great troubles. Maybe you're not either. But here, we need this corrective, this reminder from James. He says, brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. How many like the book of, of James? Most of us like James's letter, but you kind of read this part and you kind of like, yeah, I aspire to that. I aspire to that, but I think we struggle. And it's probably normal for humans to struggle with like, how do I turn persecution into a, a, a cause for celebration? Of expectancy that God is growing me and that my faith will become strong through this. As James points out, when our faith is tested, our endurance has a chance to grow. Only when our, when our faith is being tested will things like endurance have a chance to actually grow. Because endurance does not grow theoretically, right? You can't develop like mental strategies or theories about endurance that actually are effective when the trials come, when the testing comes. You actually just have to practice it by doing it. As our endurance grows, we find our faith in Jesus becoming more complete and not lacking. This is one of those promises we can hold on to in Scripture. It says, hey, when you endure, when you allow this experience to develop deeper and more perseverance and endurance, you will find that your faith becomes robust. Your faith becomes more and more complete, less lacking in those things that you sensed you lacked before. All of a sudden it becomes galvanized and strong because of the persecution, because of the trials. Now this wisdom from James was timely for his readers in the Jewish diaspora. Does anyone know what the word diaspora means? 
What's a good word for diaspora? Scattered. I'm seeing hand motions from Ethan. Good. Anyone else? Scattered. The Jewish population that had been scattered around the world largely by persecution, largely by exile. But James is writing to the Jewish diaspora. As a leader in the Jerusalem church, James had great influence. He had great influence over many Christian Jews who had fled persecution and were now, were now scattered all across the Roman world. So, he finds it meaningful and important to begin his letter with encouragement. Encouragement, not only, not only to persevere in the face of trials, but to actually rejoice because of it. He doesn't just say, hey guys, hang in there. He says, hey, I know you're going through a tough time, but rejoice. Rejoice in the face of those trials. Why would he say such a thing? Why would James start his letter with such a statement? It's because of this. Because God is actually growing their faith and developing their resilience through those very trials. James knows that they will gain something that can only be gained through struggle and hardship. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul how, saying in, in Romans 8.28 how God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose for them. Familiar with that passage, but understand, hold it in tension with what James is saying. God causes everything, good, bad, hard, easy, to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes for them. So, where did our Christian forebears get this idea that trials and troubles were a gift? Did they just pull this out of the air or just stack hands and say, hey, let's talk about hardship as if it's good because we can't figure out how to get away from it. So we might as well put a positive spin on it, right, guys? On three, trials. You know, no. Where did this come from? Where did this consistent theme through the writers of the New Testament come from that we grow strong through our struggles? We become resilient in our faith through trials and hardship. How did this notion of persecution leading to blessing and growth become so ingrained in our, ingrained in our Christian faith? Sunday school answer, anyone? Jesus, right, right. <laughs> Like most things in our theological framework, the idea comes from Jesus himself. Okay, this isn't an idea cobbled together by the New Testament writers. This idea comes from Jesus himself. Not only did Jesus demonstrate this truth with his life, because we talked about with the kids, remember? Jesus did the right thing and he ended up nailed to a cross. He suffered intense, life-ending persecution. Because he was doing the right thing, right? Not only did Jesus demonstrate this truth with his life, he shared it, he shared it in his teachings in many places. But today, he shares it in the Sermon on the Mount. He shares it in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus demonstrates it with his life, but he also makes it uh, explicit in his teachings. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And today we're going to read through the whole section then on the Sermon on the Mount, on the Beatitudes. Romans chapter, or, uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for, their, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Verse 10, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So as we tune our ear to hear Jesus' words here, as we understand what he's saying, let's understand, recall who he is. In this moment, Jesus is both master teacher and prime example of kingdom values. Okay, he's the master teacher, but he's also the primary example of kingdom values, the kingdom values expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. As such, Jesus informs us. Jesus is the point of reference for what it means to have a beautiful attitude. Curious what a beautiful attitude looks like in a lived out sense? Look at Jesus. Look at the life Jesus lived in accordance to his own teachings. Jesus is the point of reference for what it means to have a beautiful attitude. One of the commentaries I was looking at and putting this message together, uh, the University Press New Testament commentary, uh, has this to say about Jesus being the point of reference. The characteristics Jesus lists as belonging to the people of the kingdom are also those that Jesus himself exemplifies as the leading servant of the kingdom and son par excellence of the Father. Jesus is meek and lowly of heart. He mourns over the unrepentant. He shows mercy. He is a peacemaker. If he is lowly, how much more must we be his disciples who are to imitate his ways in contrast to worldly paradigms for religious celebrities? One must notice that Jesus' promise of blessing for the peacemakers comes right before and is connected to the blessing for those who are persecuted for doing what is right. Have you ever noticed this? That Jesus' promise of blessing for the peacemakers comes right before the blessing for those who are persecuted for doing what is right. I don't think this is by accident. I think these two ideas are connected. Working for peace in, the, in a world that loves war Working for peace in a world that loves war and calling people to repentance, um, uh, calling people to repentance among people who love sin, who love idolatry. This is indeed a path of love and truth, yes, but it is also the path of much pain, hardship, and rejection. Because the world loves darkness, it will hate the light. D.A. Carson characterizes it this way, it is no accident that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, for the world enjoys its cherished hates, its cherished prejudices, so much that the peacemaker is not always welcome. Opposition is a normal mark of being a disciple of Jesus, as normal as hungering for righteousness or being merciful. 
Let's flip to John 15. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. Here, Jesus' words himself. Notice it's in red in your Bible. John 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, and so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me. For they have rejected the one who sent me. So hey, if they hate you, if the world hates you for doing right, take heart, they hated me first. If you suffer, hold fast to the fact that I suffered first and was for a good cause. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Following Jesus and living in His way, it leads to opposition. It leads to persecution. If we try to avoid all trials and every rejection in our faith, we will inevitably, inevitably depart from our faith because following Jesus leads us through persecution, not away from it. So if you try to avoid all rejection, all hardship... All friction, all static, because of you living out your faith. If you try to avoid that, you'll find that you're inevitably wandering away from where Jesus is leading you. Because over and over again, following Jesus leads us to the cross. This is not to say, however, and this is an important caveat, this is not to say that all rejection and abuse you receive is good or godly. Okay? Many times Christians... are just big, arrogant jerks. Okay? I think this is an important few moments here. A lot of times Christians go out thinking we're bearing the cross, bearing the banner of Christ, and we're just being jerks. A lot of Christians go out in the world bearing the name of Jesus, and they're big, arrogant jerks who are offensive, who are wrong-headed, and who are stubborn, and so sweetly need to be slapped down. The, the persecution, the pushback, the, 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 the hardship they're experiencing, they brought it on themselves. Okay, So don't go out and because you're a Christian, think you can be a, a stubborn uh, jerk and then get backlash, get trolled on Facebook and think that you're being persecuted for Christ's sake. No, you're being a jerk. It's possible for Christians to be jerks and be persecuted because they're being jerks, not because they're being Christ-like. Okay? Is that enough said about that? Let's move on. Jesus makes it clear. Only persecution we experience because of working for peace is blessed. Only that work which we put our hand to, uh, that peacemaking, that, the, the persecution we experience because we've been doing that peacemaking work, only those who are faithfully cultivating reconciliation between God and mankind and between mankind and mankind, only those who are committed to that, cultivating reconciliation, those are the ones who are blessed. Those are the ones who will be at home in the kingdom. Dirk Navis, who we talked about, or we heard from last week, he, he, he talks about it this way. He says, rooted firmly in the peace made by Christ... Today's peacemakers must look to his life as the model. 
His peacemaking earned him the hatred of religious leaders and the derision of his own family. His peacemaking led him to a garden, not to a quiet repose, but for midnight wrestling and not for cool refreshment, but an, an overflowing cup of almighty wrath. His peacemaking led him to a cross. It led him to outer darkness. It also led him to a crown, a throne, and a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is the lot of peacemakers. Their bodies are scarred, and they have been despised, but their harvest is full, and their title is no cause for shame, for they shall be called children of God. So now we've reached the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. But here's the thing, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't end here. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't end here, it continues on. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's much more to be said. Much more to be said about being salt and being light, about being a city on a hill, about anger, about adultery, about revenge, about love for enemies, prayer, fasting, compassion, and much more. But here's the thing. Jesus' sermon continued on after those people had left the hillside that day. Jesus' sermon continued on after the disciples had made camp that night. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount continues on even today after you reach the end of Matthew chapter 7. The beautiful attitudes that Jesus describes on that mountain in Matthew, the beautiful attitudes that Jesus demonstrated in His life and His ministry, they continue on in you and me. The Sermon on the Mount continues on in us. The beautiful attitudes of Christ, they go out into the world through us as the people of God. So may Jesus' words recalibrate us. May Jesus' words transform our understanding of what it means to follow Him as we discover what it means to be truly blessed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder in your word. Thank you for the corrective we sense to our own practice of the faith. God, we're, a, we're creatures with a survival instinct. We, we tend to go uh, the path of least resistance. We tend to avoid conflict and pushback. And that can become a deceptive thing in our Christian walk. Because God, if we're following after Jesus, we understand that it's going to lead us into difficulty. It's going to lead us to the cross. It's going to lead us into dying to self. But sometimes our instincts are to avoid pain and to avoid difficulty. So God, I thank you for the word and I thank you for the, 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 the check in our spirit that it brings. Lord, I think sometimes um, a spirit of lethargy and of comfort has invaded my faith, has distracted me. It's kept me from pursuing the endurance, the perseverance. It's, it's kept me from uh, appropriating and appreciating hardship as a gift. I think I've struggled at times to give thanks when trials have come my way. And God, I want to do a better job of that. 
So God, I pray that you'd meet with us here in this room today. I pray that you would meet with my brothers and sisters that are seeking to follow Jesus. And I pray that you'd give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand all that your Holy Spirit is doing in them and all that the Holy Spirit is doing in the world to use the hardship to grow them. Lord, I pray that we'd be peacemakers indeed. I pray that we wouldn't be arrogant jerks. I pray that we wouldn't be offending people because we're stubborn or because we're partisan. Uh, I pray that we would uh, put Christ first, a desire to see Him glorified, to see the gospel proclaimed, and to see mankind reconciled to You, Father. And we'd also desire to see man reconciled uh, among themselves, that peace would be made here on the earth. Lord, so do a work in our hearts, I ask, I pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to sit for a moment. I'm going to ask Nathan to come and just play some music. I'm going to give us a, just a few minutes here to just reflect something we used to do that I think we forgot about <laughs> and we stopped doing. But I want to be more intentional at the end of our time of, of opening God's Word to create space for the Holy Spirit to move and to uh, speak those words we need to hear. For us to have that conversation with God that maybe has been waiting all week to take place. Well, we want to be uh, on purpose about making space for us to do nothing but sit in the presence of the Lord and speak with Him. If you need to uh, pray with someone, if you want to pray with me, that's fine. But make the most of this opportunity.